This is Dr. Liz. And this is Dr. Zine. And welcome to another session of PhD Um, We have a very special guest, my PhD advisor actually, Shirley Samuels. Uh, Liz and I are back in town for a friend's wedding. You may remember the episode that we did with Dr. Shyla Foster about studying PhD love, which included Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, and Shirley was uh, both Shyla's advisor and mine. And it's sort of interesting to be back at Cornell after having graduated. It's this interesting sort of epilogue to our journey here. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons why we wanted to interview Dr. Samuels is because he wanted to reflect on our PhDs now that we're both done and think about um, people that inspired us or that we felt were very influential. And um, I have never met you, but I have known you through Zine, and so you've sort of been a champion for me, like an inspiration. Like, oh, I want an advisor like that. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, welcome. Thank you. Should we call you Shirley or Dr. Sanders? You can call you? me Shirley. Okay. It's, when I'm teaching undergraduates, mm-hmm. I say call me Professor Samuels, mm. at least in the beginning, because I think it's important for them to stay comfortable with an environment where a woman is a professor. Mm-hmm. It really is part mm-hmm. of it. When I started teaching, I was 27. Mm-hmm. I was really young. Wow. Yeah. yeah so that I walked into the class, my first class, they said, you're the professor? <laughs> and almost on the spot decided from then on. I had to tell my students to call me professor. Wow. So they'd remember. Now, obviously, I got a little older. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. I can't tell. <laughs> but I, I have, um, I've heard that's a, I know that's a huge issue for people, um, being having that authority when they enter the classroom. And it's so interesting when I go into forums about this, and some people are really relaxed, and some people mm-hmm. are just, like, strict, you know, and... Yeah, like you sort of have to hold the line for all those other women in academia, especially women of color in academia, who find it difficult to, um, whose authority is is often challenged. Um, Mm -hmm. Just to give a little bit of background, so one of the reasons I chose Shirley as my advisor, not just because she's massively accomplished with several books um, that she's authored and edited and... Um, she works in 19th century American literature and visual culture. But also when I came into the program, it immediately struck me that her advisees just seem so much happier <laughs> and, <laughs> and more supported, perhaps, than others. And just like just seeing um, indirectly what the type of relationship that they had with her was like, I was, I was like, I wanted to get in on that. Mm. <laughs> So, and it was funny that we were just sitting outside in the lounge because that's exactly the part. I remember when I was standing there when I first came in the first week with like Jill and Shyla and they were talking about you. And I was like, Shirley Samuels sounds like a good advisor. <laughs> well, what I often say to prospective graduate students is that it's extremely important that they find good peers. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that I'll point out about my advisees, which I really strongly appreciate and you're obviously like in a huge category here, is how much they provide a network for each other and how much they provide support for each other. And I feel like half of what I do is just encourage that. You know, be mm-hmm. be a backup person, as in you're going to have to find your own way. Mm-hmm. I will provide you with tools, but one of the biggest tools is learning to trust each other and build things together. That's so awesome. And I know that you're, you guys, you're in English, but that would also apply to the STEM fields where you're in a lab and if you don't work well together, actually that's 
going to hamper everyone's progress if you yeah. can't share the same space, tools, and knowledge that you learn. Yeah. I've seen this backfire so many times. In the humanities, people are not encouraged to think of themselves as part of a humanities lab. Yeah. But you often are mm -hmm. because you're going to build conferences together. You're going to build seminars together. Mm. You might be team teaching together. And you're 20 or 30 years in the same profession, depending on how things go, mm -hmm. are going to be so much more fun if you actually <laughs> like each other. Mm -hmm. And there's, I, I feel blessed, I have to say. I feel really lucky at Cornell and that I've worked with a group of graduate students who give each other that kind of life with ARG, but also just informally. ARG stands for the Americanist Reading Group, <laughs> just for our so they, for, for years now, the Americanist Reading Group has been doing peer conferences, mm -hmm. peer networking, building things together, inviting, you know, raising funds and bringing, and you've signed just been really great at that. So I'm giving you a little bit back. Uh -huh. sure. <laughs> yeah, so why don't you actually go back a little bit for us and tell us, um, you know, who you are, what do you like to do, what do you do? Yeah, how would you describe yourself? Well, I, I for a long time, because I went to school at the University of California, Berkeley, um, for all my degrees, but I was born in Chicago, and I lived a, a, a lot in the Midwest and on the East Coast. Um, my father was in medical school when I was born, and then... He paid for it because he was actually a poor farm boy from a farm near the Mississippi River. He paid for it with the public health service, which is like ROTC for doctors, hmm. which is to say he had um, an obligation to serve for a number right, of years, right. which also meant we moved around. Which air, which base, I mean, which service? Yeah, which service? <laughs> air Force, military. Air oh, Force, no, sorry. It's, it's public health services. Oh, sorry, is public health but he didn't services. have to serve in a particular branch of the military. No, 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 but, but he was in places like Norfolk, Virginia, where he was wearing a uniform. Okay, you know, okay, because so, you said ROTC, and I was curious what no, he did. No, it's not officially ROTC. Oh, okay, so I got just, it. It's just like a joke about how it works out. <laughs> oh, I but, see, because it's Because that's formula. how you pay for medical school. Got it. And so when I was a kid, we moved around. I lived in six states before I was eight. Wow. So Boston, D.C., Norfolk, Rockville, Maryland, Iowa City, Iowa, mm. you know, all these places that give me a strong sense, first of all, of the the rootedness is where my parents grew up. They grew up, my father grew up on a farm in Illinois. My mother grew up on a ranch in South Dakota. Wow. And I know very few people whose parents grew up on farms who are in academia. They're, they're out there. Yeah. But they're not many. And because we moved around so much, my sense of roots is much more on the farms that my parents grew up on rather than any place that I grew up, because I didn't. Right. I was going to ask if any of those places I identify for you in some way. But... No. I, I lived in so many states. And the longest I'd lived anywhere before I came here was in at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've been here for a really long time. But when I first went out to California, I so identified it. I thought, oh, I, well, I need to be in California. And I <laughs> identified as a Midwesterner in part as a kind of resistance to mm. the automatic assumptions people in California make about each other. Mm. But then when I came back east, because my first job was at Princeton, mm -hmm. which was a very hierarchical school, mm. and women at that time were still required to wear skirts and dresses. Well, they just what coming off of that. Wait, what? what? No, I know. They're just coming off of a dress code. This is wait oh just 2016. Wait, no, no, this is in the 1980s. Oh dear oh, God, 1980s. Wow. But it hadn't been co-ed for very long. It was also just coming off of being an all-male environment. Oh. Yale, a few year, Princeton, no Princeton, yeah. Princeton altogether. Yeah, a few years. I mean, it had probably been 10 years, but you still felt it. I see. And you go to these faculty meetings. Faculty meetings were in the chapel. <laughs> so I came up with a whole theory of universities, which is about factories and chapels, public mm. universities. 
aspiring more to the condition of factories, which is you teach education as labor and a way of getting access to labor. Yes. And private universities as religion, based mm. on the monastic tradition mm. that education is a higher good that you will worship. Mm -hmm. Cornell, for me, is a nice blend of that. And that was actually yes. what attracted me to Cornell, because you have both the factory and the chapel. It's both a public and a private school. But when I first got to Princeton, I was in shock in terms of just the cultural shift in thinking about education. Mm -hmm. So many of my students had been in prep schools. I didn't even oh, know God. what a prep school yes, was. Yes. I didn't know. People yeah. would say, where did you go to school? And what they meant was, what prep school? Yeah. I had never heard that before. Yeah. Which is to say a West Coast public school. Exeter. You don't ask those questions. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like where you are is you're at Berkeley, which, of course, people are happy about. But it was still a state school. And I was still teaching, you know, often I taught seven courses there. So these bleached blonde surfer kids yeah. who really... For them, many of them, English was a second language because that they spoke with surfer talk. <laughs> <laughs> that has not changed, I think. I, in, recently in California, and I know it's very similar. But that really resonates with me. I went to UPenn, so I was ah. also this kid from Mississippi who just didn't really... Um, I mean, looking back, I think I was just as qualified as anyone else to be there. But did I understand the game? No. And I think that's what, the thing that I didn't understand when people said it'd be hard. I didn't know what they were talking about. And I think I'm actually grateful I had an ego because you don't do things that you're afraid of if you don't like believe that someone else is wrong. I don't know. There's maybe that's another theory, but I, um, <laughs> I've heard that in some of the things you said, I know, yeah. but, but this, I, I didn't understand why it was hard. And then when I got there, it's like, wait, everyone's from like six, the same six schools almost. Right. <laughs> and they're all from like the same six States. And everyone came in here already having the Ivy league, uh, hustle already they've been doing this since they were in sixth grade mm. and this is like nothing for them and I'm walking in like oh this is going to be collaborative and we can help each other we're going to learn and Ben Franklin had this like you know this motto and what he wanted from his students and and, and I'm really into this and it's going to be exciting it's like what just happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like it resonates with me a lot yeah, I was I, when I was at Princeton, I was teaching a small seminar, and two of the kids were from the, from the same prep school, and I said, well, that's very nice, you know? And they said, no, 25 of us came this yes. year from the same prep school. I was like, you don't get this it. This isn't new for you. I'm the only one from my state. You're over here. <laughs> but, I, but as a teacher, I will say that the disappointment for many of them was they were having taught at Berkeley, you know, because, again, I taught I had taught more at Berkeley than I did my first year at Princeton. Mm -hmm. And you have many, many raw students coming in out of the public school system in California, but mm -hmm. they're so eager to learn. Mm -hmm. And at Princeton, they were so sure they didn't need to learn. Uh, they were well prepared. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But that conviction that you're going to learn something and that's why you're there is more, I think it's still more present in public education than in private schools. Mm -hmm. It shifts because Cornell is a mix. Again, mm -hmm. it's more attractive to me teaching here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me even hearing from some of our friends who teach in the Cornell Prison Education Program that um, the sheer eagerness of the students um, who are in prisons um, compared to, say, very privileged Cornell students, that they're both equally intelligent, but, they're intelligent, but their attitude towards education is so different. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I gave a talk last week at California State University at Northridge in um, what really struck me was they were so worried 
about whether they could get into any other school for graduate programs. They kind of had this inferiority complex in a way. And I'm, I'm actually going to send them an email, but what, what I was thinking, because in all honesty at Cornell, I am the only person who went to an Ivy League undergrad in my entire, and definitely my year, I only knew of one other person. Hmm. Um, well, two other people. Um, and... And, and looking at them, like, for me, like, I'm not only a black person and a woman, but I am also, like, one of three people out of, like, say, 100 who actually came from an Ivy. And these kids are thinking they're not qualified. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you're exactly the kind of students mm-hmm. they want. It's just so interesting. And then as an engineering TA, so all the first-year TAs have to go through this engineering training program. Mm-hmm. So I did this for three years. So I, I, I've seen them all. I've seen, like, hundreds, thousands maybe of students. And I do a panel where hmm. they can ask questions. And every every single year, every single time I do this panel, they always ask, "Well, I came from Nowhere State University. Yeah, how are these are these Ivy kids going to be smarter than me? Are they going to respect? Like they're so worried about whether their caliber of education mm-hmm. is somehow going to impact their ability to teach these kids. And it's like, do, like do you you don't understand? You know what it what it actually um, means or what the real difference of being at a school like this versus not and how it's not actually about the person so much. It's like the training you get once you get there. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I'm not, I'm rambling at this point, no, but no, it's no. so interesting because every, it happens every single year. There's mm-hmm. always a student so, to the point where I would just, if they didn't ask, I would say it because I know they were all thinking it. Mm-hmm. And it always fell along these state um, lines, state university yeah. public education lines. Well, this is where mentoring really helps mm-hmm. because I think that it is, it, the first year is always going to be tough. Yeah. No matter what. But if you have some sense of that somebody's cheering for you and that you can work on your skills, because mm-hmm. it's never about intelligence. It's no. always about mm-hmm. skills and your ability to adapt to an environment. Speaking of adapting to environments, I just wanted to go back a bit to when you were talking about being at Princeton in the 80s, where they still mm. have the dress codes. And I think definitely something that we're interested in hearing, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, is what it was like to and maybe continue to be in the trenches of a lot of the problems around being a woman in academia. And I'd mm. also like to add that, like, Shirley is incredibly accomplished, and she's also been the director of um, the Feminism, Gender, Sexuality program at Cornell. She was the chair of the Art History Department of uh, Visual Studies as well, and also has Professor Flora Rose. So she's also been someone who's occupied a lot of positions that have been able to, like, make change in substantive ways in the university well, one of the things that happened, as I, I think I started to say when I first arrived at Princeton, we had these faculty meetings in the chapel. So mm-hmm. all the faculty fit into this chapel, and I'd look around, and I would not see very many women. Still, it was a it was a process of change, and it had not happened in terms of really affecting just the bodies who filed into the room. And then I thought back to when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, way back when in the 70s, and I looked back, I found a list of all the faculty there. And there were, it was a huge department at the time. There were 75 faculty members. There were three women who were on the tenure track. Wow. And the most shocking thing I realized is that I had not noticed. As a student, as a woman student, Mm -hmm. wanting, you know, I kind of shifted around things I wanted to do. It was like psychology, this, that, and then English I settled on. I took it for granted. Professors are men. And Mm. it almost on the spot made me so much more, I mean, I was working on feminist issues all along, but it made me so much more interested in, 
you know, agitating for feminist agendas. And so that when I arrived at Cornell, I pretty much immediately joined what was then the Women's Studies Program and got involved. It was tough because for what became FGSS, which is Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies, the initial push, which came out of a conference in 1969, so it's one of the oldest programs in the country, mm-hmm. the initial push came along with a desire to be intellectually respectable. And when I became director, there was some controversy about it because I was very interested in kind of global outreach and organized a conference, which was in part on things like Muslim identity. Mm-hmm. And there were older women in the program who were very unhappy about that, thinking this is not intellectually respectable. This is not going, this is going to make us look like activists instead of intellectuals. <laughs> Seriously, oh, point blank. I see. Mm-hmm. And it is a problem with a lot of emerging programs. Like, how much do you pay attention to the activist agenda, which is forms of outreach, forms of engagement, and how much are you building up a profile where you can say, we're training students to get their PhD in ways that will be recognized by the universities. And I think Cornell has come around on this somewhat. I mean, at the time, we wanted to work on outreach in the community and we couldn't get clearance to have people teach courses that would they would get credit. Mm-hmm. Now, in fact, for next year, I'm what they call an engaged fellow, mm-hmm. which is the university's interested in public engagement and is starting to encourage people to do outreach with programs in the community. Mm-hmm. And the Cornell Prison Education Program is one of them. But it's it's been you know, a long time. That's kind of ironic because um, on West Campus, what they tell you about the dorms or in the beginning is that Cornell didn't have dorms because Ezra Cornell's mission was that students would live in the community yeah. and have an immersed experience. So that's really interesting. So in a way, that, it's come back to that. Yeah, I'm glad it's come back. But it, again, it should have always been there if you really think about it. Um, that's, it's interesting. Yeah. These programs. So was there... Um, since you were there at Princeton while there's still the dress code, do you remember the moment where we were actually I think, they, pants? I think they'd done away with the dress code. Oh, okay. I think it was just that it was a residue. Like oh, men, okay. were, men were wearing jackets and ties to teach, mm-hmm. and women tended to wear dresses. Uh, okay. And so it was a, I had been a graduate student at Berkeley wearing blue jeans mm-hmm. and T-shirts. Right? So I show up and I was like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I was perfectly happy there in the sense that um, I had really good colleagues and good students and... You know, but at the same time, I was completely alienated, mm-hmm. and I had to adjust. Yeah. What was it like um, first starting your first faculty position, um, like transitioning from graduate student to faculty? And if you could also answer, are there ways in which how your transition happened are, are different from the way that people are going into academia today? Well, there. I mean, Princeton was very hierarchical. Cornell, at least on the surface has always been very democratic. So there's also, my biggest contrast is to compare my first year at Princeton and my first year here. Mm -hmm. There were faculty meetings at Princeton where you would be halfway through the meeting and then they would say, okay, all the assistant professors need to leave now. Oh, Mm. wow. So your status was basically continually being emphasized and Mm -hmm. you had an idea, and, and I'm gonna say this is a joke, but it's true, when I was hired, I was put into an office in the basement. All the assistant professors were in, literally in the basement. That was never used as an office again. It was turned into a copy room because it was so undesirable. Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, that, that is, you were just, your status was wow. just there. 
That's like being a grad student. It was like, it was more than that. You were told to teach discussion sections of senior faculty lecture wow. classes with the graduate students. Wow. Wow. Yes. And in effect, although they claimed it was a 2-2 teaching load, it was a 4-4 teaching load because that was extra work that wasn't counted. What? And then I got here, and it was all about, and this is, you know, so both both have pros and cons. Mm -hmm. So there were people who liked being at Princeton precisely because the hierarchy was so clear. Mm -hmm. You know, you just always knew where you stood, which was at the bottom. But you knew. (laughs) You were there, right? You knew it. And arriving here, I mean, I really was very happy to be hired here. So, But at the same time, you were immediately asked to assume a lot of responsibilities, and it can be disorienting to go start a job at a place that it, where immediately everybody's saying, well, come join this program. Come to this program. Mm. Join up with this committee. We need you over here. And it is very easy, and I've mentored a number of beginning assistant professors, to become overwhelmed by the very obvious thing that you might want to go to all those places and meet all those people, but then when are you doing your research? Mm-hmm. So as I said, there are, there are pros and cons either way. It was disorienting to be in a place where I was immediately asked to do lots of things. How did you, did you start off being able to say no, or did you kind of have, fall off a cliff and then go? <laughs> I did up. not start off knowing how to say no. <laughs> I still have to work on it. And So it's um, always a work in progress. No, and, and this is like one of the things that we've talked about. When people say, and believe me, I've talked to academics all over the world, and often women will, when we get a moment alone, say, okay, so how do you deal with this work-life balance? And I yeah. say, the first way to deal with it is you never use the word balance. Mm-hmm. You take it for granted that you will always have an imbalance. And you try to figure out how to stay sane. Mm-hmm. It is never going to be imbalanced. You're always going to be working on some relationship between the duties that are essential to your job mm-hmm. and all the other things you want to and need to do. And you're always navigating them. So it's funny because when I, I, I feel like work balance is a cliche, So, but I still say it because in my head balance never means 50-50. It means like whatever scale you make it that yeah. day. And I even get kind of physics-y in my head and I'll put I'll make it a function. like Calibration. Work balance like and the, the, the parameters are like time and like desire. Like So it's like this. You need six to Kind of differential equation in this way, like with all these variables and like you calculate. I mean, I don't calculate it, but in my head, it makes more sense when I think about as an equation that has different variables and it, so it varies in space and time and how you feel, but you're always negotiating that. And um, what I always thought was interesting is that as an undergrad, from that point, every time there's like a conference or a meeting about women and you're networking, mm-hmm. they always ask, work-life balance and they always ask how do you have children Mm -hmm. and then I also like besides the food which is great and free (laughs) I stopped paying attention because I'm listening like they all say the same thing and 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 that is you just do it it just happens or like in terms of children like or you have good support around you or Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as balance you're always navigating you kind of put your foot down on some things and then not on others and then two weeks later you have to switch it around or something so they never have straightforward answers. I'm like, okay, that gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. There's no straightforward answer. I have different different models for that. Sometimes yeah, I'll, what's your I'll model? well, no, I've been. I will always have a messy house. Mm-hmm. That's my characteristic mm-hmm. anyway. I'm just messy, but I never try to think that I should have a clean house. Mm. 
because if I do, I'm going to feel bad all the time. Right. So it's a version of choose your battles. But another mm-hmm. one is like, okay, often, and you know this, there was a period of my life when I was doing three jobs at once, plus being a single parent. Mm-hmm. So, so what I would say to myself is, okay, there's three or four people who are technically working here, right? So any one of them can be on duty at any given time, but they can't all be. Mm-hmm. So I know that's a kind of crazy sci-fi model, which no, is to I say you swap in, swap out what person can be on deck because mm-hmm. you cannot always all of you be there. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting, and I'm curious what you'll say about this, is um, you accept this model, right? You can do, maybe you can have it all, but definitely not at the same time. You always have to kind yeah. of make a priority and something's not going to be 100%. And what I struggle with is that there's always this kind of inflection point where I don't, when do I realize I need to actually change? Mm. You know, and so how do you actually yeah. go from I'm feeling exhausted, I'm feeling drained, mm-hmm. and knowing that needs a change like that again? Yeah. Sometimes you, you can be slow to knowing when you need to change. Yeah. Well, then, and how I do often, you make that change? Yeah. I I can't tell you how you make your yeah. change, but what I will say also is that I try to think about effect. Like, mm-hmm. so to be very personal, if the effect of my house being messy means I never want anybody to come over, then it's a problem, mm-hmm. and I should hire somebody to come in and clean my house so I can invite a friend over. Mm-hmm. So if the effect of what's going on with you is that you're so exhausted you can't function, then something needs to get dropped, whether it's sleep. I mean, you know, whether you <laughs> add, in, no, I meant add, in, add, okay. add in sleep or, or for me it's also, you know, when I'm doing really well, I'll exercise three times a week just for a form of meditation mm-hmm. because it clears my head. Not because I'm going to become some athlete, but just that this is my meditation time. And then when I was doing three jobs at once, what I did, which I appreciated, that is, I appreciate the support that I got, was I said, because I was managing Floro's house, in effect, I was like, not the manager, but mm-hmm. there was, and I was chair of an academic department, and I was teaching. And so what I said to the staff that were on, in Floro's house in art history, I need to have three hours a day where nobody contacts me. Because, in fact, one of my other jobs is writing. Mm-hmm. And if I don't make sure that I'm doing that, I'm not doing my job. Mm-hmm. And I just, I said, I'll be here. If there's an emergency, I'm here. But there has to be a time when you're not asking me questions. And they were, that's why I say I'm grateful because they respected that. Mm-hmm. I said, this is the time. It's going to be the time, same time every day. I'm always going to be available for you from noon to six every day. But I'm not going to be available for meetings in the morning. Don't schedule them. So if you're in charge, you can do that. Yeah. If you're not, that's the thing, right? <laughs> if you're not in charge... Then you have to do some, you know, more or less psych yourself out version of that, mm-hmm. which is to say, this is the time I protect. Mm-hmm. And you just do everything you can to protect the time. It doesn't have to be very much. I find you can do a lot in three hours a day. I think so. But you have to be really as hard and fast as you can about it. Like no friends, no coffee, no, no you know what I mean? Like, is, that's not the time when you see people. Mm-hmm. That lesson's finally sinking in for me. It really truly is like okay you are harming yourself when you do not do these things Mm -hmm. or protecting yourself um when I first started my PhD a professor no I was undergrad going into so I wasn't even there yet and someone said that the PhD is the most selfish thing you you would ever do in your life and I didn't really understand what they were saying about what what it meant to be selfish and now I'm starting to get it because it really does mean I'm not going to go out with you. I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm not going to do this. 
Um, even if I want to, I just can't and I won't because I need to be here and I, I need to do this. When I was doing my PhD, I always saw people on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I kept one day a week. that Because you have to see people. Right. You don't right. drop your friends. But I found if I saw, if I made sure there was one day a week when I would know I would see people, mm-hmm. it made it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard from you. Oh, I was just thinking, uh, sorry, I also got a text from Charlotte. Um, but uh, to, to steer away from uh, the more general topics that we're talking about, I was sort of curious about your perspective on working in American studies and American literature from when you first entered the academy through to, to now. And like what, of course, what the more generic question, like what drew you, but also what continues to, to draw you to the field mm-hmm. in relation to like either existing and ongoing discussions in the field, but also maybe to present day events. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's trying not to say there's a presidential election going on. Have you ever yeah, thought like about a lot that? Of is this related? Or... Oh my gosh, this is exciting. <laughs> so. You guys can't see. I'm like turning to her full direction. Ah, yeah, no, no. I don't have a pen and paper, but. It's going to be very indirect as, mm-hmm. I, as I get to it because at Berkeley when I started, there was a requirement. I don't know if I remember, it was six fields or nine fields or something, but you had to satisfy by coursework or exams a whole panoply of, you know, everything from medieval up to the present. And I had, as an undergraduate, written an honors thesis on Finnegan's Wake, and I was so into Anglo-Irish, and that was, like, what I was going to do, and I was all excited about it. And I got there with that requirement, and so what that meant was I passed the exams immediately mm-hmm. in those fields. I didn't need to take courses in them because I knew those areas, but I knew nothing about the American literature. It was not my field. So I had to take courses. And once I started taking courses, I got interested, which is dangerous. It was a dangerous requirement, you know? Because what it meant for, well, for me, I'm just a little easily distractible or ADHD or something, but it was like, oh, this academic. is fun. I could do this. But then it also, when I, the more I thought about it, and this is again going to be biographical in a peculiar way, the more I realized that it had always been, you know, like when I was in fifth grade writing historical fantasies, they were all about fighting in the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Somewhere there are these, still these stories that I wrote. And I had, you know, my grandmother's grandfather was a Civil War soldier. She was a DAR. I had mm-hmm. family, and I knew this growing up, family from the time of Plymouth Plantation settling in the United States. And mostly that his, my father's Swedish, the Swedish immigrant story is a different one, 19th century Swedish immigrants. But the the sense of what it took to be adapting continually, because people in my family were pretty much always poor farmers. They weren't the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. But the idea of the founding fathers is nonetheless a form of aristocracy. So that conflict between poverty, which has always fascinated me, that is how do people negotiate a sense of pride in a system that says it's not full of class dynamics. Could you go back to the founding fathers being a system of aristocracy? Oh, no. I mean, the the language of the founding fathers, the language of Plymouth Plantation to the present has always been these are the, and this is the conflict about doing American studies. These, because I used to, when I first arrived at Cornell, there was a requirement for the students to take an intro course, which is, a, I'm teaching a version of it this fall, which is introduction from 1620 up to the time of the American Renaissance. And I would go into these classes, and they often would attract history department, government department students who were very, very patriotic and really did not understand 
why I would critique somebody like William Bradford for his arrogance um, or critique the idea of a Christian nation, even as I was very interested in patriotism and religion mm. as principles of democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, in the United States, we have a tradition of imagining that there was this kind of heroic act of people arriving who believed in religious freedom and founded this great nation. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I'm fascinated by that topic as a myth, as a, and that's a myth that Donald Trump is, of course, mm-hmm. buying into. And as you know, I, I was interested in that piece that Lauren Berlant wrote because yeah. she's talking a lot about what are the emotions of the people supporting Donald Trump. And they are people who feel that they've been passed over Mm-hmm. in, you know, their attention to what it means to be who they are, they're not seeing themselves represented. And I was, but I'm saying when I first started teaching this intro to American literature here at Cornell, I, I found people like that. That is often, I'm sorry to say, because it sounds like such a terrible cliche, but white men mm-hmm. um, who thought that I was being disrespectful to the idea of founding fathers, to the principles of this country. And I think that if you're really going to be respectful to the principles of this country, you have to be able to question them. You Mm -hmm. have to be able to think about how they Mm -hmm. function and who are the different people included and excluded by things like the Declaration of Independence, Mm -hmm. which when Jefferson first wrote it, blamed King George, blamed England for introducing slavery. The first draft is about a critique of how the United States has gotten in trouble because, well, it wasn't yet the United States, Mm -hmm. but because they were forced to have a system of slavery. They, of course, took that out. That's not the Declaration of Independence we now know. Right. It was edited. <laughs> but that was the original concept. And that version of, you know, like displacing blame mm-hmm. and of saying this is terrible, we've had, we've had to do this, even if we didn't want to, is, I think, part of the dynamic of thinking about race and American culture. And that has always interested me. I mean, the first collection of essays I edited, the subtitles Race, Gender, and Sentimentality in 19th Century America. And that sense of bringing together questions about race, questions about gender, and feelings in terms of how they inform what is the United States, it's still a live question. That's a long answer. but No, I have, my, my mind is swirling. It's, <laughs> it's so exciting. But I also ask you to slow down because I think I'm less familiar with some of these topics. But I do... But I can sense this idea that there's the myth, and we treat mm-hmm. it as if it's real. And when you can't buy into that, you question. Okay, I'm I'm ad libbing my thoughts, so I know it's not going to be coherent. But when I think about a lot of white men, mm-hmm. and particularly when Barack Obama was elected, mm-hmm. there was almost and I. <laughs> One of my friends just said, you know, he's a poor white guy. And now what does it mean to have a black person reach the highest office and they themselves have not mm-hmm. reached any office, mm-hmm. so to speak? Yeah. Um, what does that mean for the American promise? And I, and I can also see how some people, if you ask them, they'll say, I'm not racist or I believe mm-hmm. that everyone has a chance. Yet they are also implicitly, subconsciously very angry that they don't have opportunities, which mm-hmm. implicit, which means that they actually do believe in white privilege. Mm-hmm. They believe in white privilege because they're upset that they don't have these privileges, mm-hmm. they, that they don't have good jobs. They inherently do believe that they, as white, should be entitled to certain things, but they will not ever admit it 
because they're sold in the myth of meritocracy and that everyone gets mm-hmm. everything based on their own merit. And I can see these two in conflict so often, and it, and people don't see it or want to acknowledge it. They almost get belligerent when you question their mm-hmm. commitment to working hard and getting things because they worked hard. But implicitly, when they have or upset at people or when mm-hmm. they are complimenting, when they're saying things, it's with the assumption that as a white person, they should be getting those things. Mm-hmm. And well, certainly over any person of color or woman. Well, I think that that... Last part is tough, and it's also, I mean, I, I think we're going to bring politics and education together here. That, that was clearly part of Bernie Sanders' appeal, mm-hmm. the idea of equal access to education. If education is free, mm-hmm. then you don't have these privileged bastions of, you know, what people still see as isolated Ivy League mm-hmm. schools. Instead, everybody could get in everywhere. So the concept that meritocracy and equal access could both be out there. Interesting. I think that's part of what, Mm. I'm saying that's part of what made Bernie Sanders really popular. Mm. And I think that, and I'm not going to make lots of more political comments, I'm really not, but I know that from my daughter and a lot of her friends that that was part of it. Just that sense of there was a number one agenda. I have a 17-year-old daughter. She and her friends are thinking about college. Mm -hmm. A lot of them don't have money. Yeah. How are they going to get there? How are they going to do this? They just, frankly, they don't know. So when you have a kind of one-liner that says, yeah, equal access to education, it's incredibly appealing. That is not Donald Trump's line, but it was Bernie Sanders' line, basically. So I am not in the government department. I'm not trying to make statements about the government of the United States, but I'm really fascinated by government. And I'm fascinated by how how these appeals do look like merit, and let's go back to universities for a minute, mm-hmm. because I've certainly been in faculty meetings where people have said, how do we know if we set out to hire a woman that we're going to be hiring the best person? Mm-hmm. <sighs> yes. <laughs> and it, so in a way, this is coming back to some of the things that are also in today's election. Mm-hmm. It's not today, but you know the, the controversy mm-hmm. about the election. It's like, what does it mean to vote for a woman? I don't think people have settled on that. Yeah. And it is, just to go back to faculty meetings... It's still unclear sometimes in hiring committees, how do you set up an agenda for a hire, whether it's a postdoc or assistant professor position, that makes it clear that you're actually welcoming people of color, women, a kind of different environment and a different approach to the field. How do you emphasize that this is in large part about opening up what the field is, to go back to American studies. Mm -hmm. American studies in so many ways, fueled by a post-World War II nationalism, mm-hmm. which was, in part, celebrating white men. We're the best, we're the greatest. Yeah. And it gradually, and I was in the room for some of these fights, in the room where it happened, to kind of quote something. Um, <laughs> and the room for some of the fights involved, you know, so I'll give an example. Jan Radway at the Seattle American Studies Association giving a passionate plea for how American studies needed to open up, be more global, be more encompassing of all kinds of issues along the borders and Trans-Pacific. And I think it was Alan Trachtenberg walking out of there and saying, I just don't recognize, he's a very prominent scholar, I don't recognize this. This is Mm. not, you know, not my field. So to think about that this kind of hiring is not so much simply, because it's never simple, diversity, but it's about challenging what is a discipline challenging the kind of knowledge that you can have. 
And I think American Studies has been attractive to me all along because it does that. It does that sometimes in ways that I can't follow, but, you know, because it took, very early took on performance, media, film, all these other yeah. areas. What do you want your lasting contribution to be in the field then? I know that's a hard question because it's oh, also like thinking question. forward as well. Yeah. Well, I am actually working on a book right now that's under contract that I borrowed from Walt Whitman, the title Democratic Vistas, mm -hmm. um, on concepts of witnessing in American culture. Mm -hmm. So what it means to bear witness, what it means to witness casually as well as definitively, like in a courtroom. Mm. Now, that whether or not that will be a lasting contribution, I don't know. I kind of give up on knowing what my lasting contribution <laughs> is. Because the first thing I did was an edited collection, which mostly people will tell you never do an edited collection first. And that's had more effect than almost anything else I've done. Mm -hmm. And then I would hope, Zion is sitting right here, but I would <laughs> hope that you know the, the happy careers of my students mm -hmm. would be a lasting contribution. I guess a related topic, and I think a difficult one that we do have to address in academia is, what is it like to advise graduate students given the current climate in academia, particularly around jobs? And mm -hmm. um, Shirley, uh, because she's such an excellent advisor, has so many students that she's been uh, mentoring so many of us through the job market process, which is incredibly grueling, as people may remember from our, our earlier episodes. But I was wondering what your perspective is, has been like. No, I have to say for a while there, I was like, I can't take any more students. I can't stand this. It's so terrible out there, you know, because it's just yeah, really and, rough. And I've definitely heard that perspective from some people that they don't want to take students anymore. Well, because you're not, you know, it's sort of like I'm going to talk to you while you might be suffering, and it's not a suffering that I'm causing, but in a sense it's a suffering I'm encouraging you to undergo simply by encouraging you to write a dissertation and take this field seriously and learn to be a good teacher. Mm -hmm. And to train people that way, knowing that it might mean any number of things. The thing is, like, I am happy with other outcomes. And we've talked about mm -hmm. this. I've had graduate students who go to law school or become high school teachers or go, in one, in one kind of wonderful case, work for an online car uh, company in Seattle. Mm -hmm. You know, that's fine. You find a job you like, great. I don't feel that you've wasted your time if you have, in fact, enjoyed teaching here and working on ideas here. But it's very difficult to say to anybody the implicit promise, oh, yeah, you're going to get a tenure-track job, because they are really, really brutally hard to get. It is still the case that for people, and this is, I, I don't, any year I never want to say this, but it is still the case that for people who are willing to move to postdocs, temporary jobs, Many of them do end up in tenure-track jobs. You know, like Alex is one. Mm -hmm. You're in it, the first stage of this, and we'll see. Um, but it's every year it feels like, well, you don't know if it'll happen this year. Mm -hmm. So, so far, in a sense, also, I mean, both that I've had very, very hardworking students, and I think that they've, they've supported each other in learning the rules of how do you make sure that you have, you know, a completed dissertation, two articles that are at least out there, um, the kind of letters that you need, the kind of conference circulation that you need to make contacts. If you do all those things so far, it still means you get something. Mm -hmm. How many years that's going to be true? That I mean, I feel like a dinosaur. It's like, join me in the Pleistocene era because it's cool out here. <laughs> it's hard. 
I was also wondering, since you've given me so many, so much good advice over the years, um, if you could talk a little bit about your perspective on seeing the maturation of students from the beginning of a graduate program to the end. Because one of the things you told me, I think maybe in my first year, that's always stuck with me, that there's a difference between being a good student and being a good academic, and that so many of us come in being good uh -huh. students and knowing to jump over certain hurdles, but there's this really um, important shift in thinking about oneself that has to happen in graduate school. And I'm glad you told me that advice back to me because then uh, now I can think about, I'm teaching a graduate class this fall, and uh, I can think <laughs> about how to, because I've thought about, in fact, I talked to Neat. Alex about coming in and talking to them oh, nice. and, you know, giving some sense of the realistic difficulty of moving from place to place, not knowing what's going to happen since mm -hmm. he, he made it through that. Oh, yeah. But, and I do remember talking to you about this because you were so clearly you can, you know, she, she can blush now, so nobody can see this. You were so clearly such an excellent student, and you had such a great sense of how to master problems. But to come out and say, this is my idea, mm -hmm. and I'm going to show you why this idea matters. That's the shift that, you know, in an ideal world in which you're still training graduate students to emerge as intellectuals, that shift happens around the third year, mm -hmm. which is to say you've, you've figured out a bunch of stuff, you've read your critics, you've kind of worked out in your papers, but now you have to say, okay, now, now I know what my idea is and why it matters, and I'm going to tell you. And that is, it's a, it's a scary thing to do. It's mm -hmm. a scary leap to make. But I think you did it. But as you remember, yeah. it also goes along with, but I could also do these five or ten other things. Mm -hmm. So I'm often saying to people, you're one, Shiloh's one. Just like, okay, so have your list of things that you want to do. Put some of them in a file folder, met metaphorically speaking. Focus enough that you can be persuasive. Mm -hmm. And then be ready to think about all the other ideas for another 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. To sort of totally shift gears, but um, I was also sort of curious about your perspective as a faculty member, obviously working a lot of administrative positions where you'd have to also work across disciplinary boundaries. Um, what is that like being a humanities professor in the university, I suppose, and like having to advocate for the humanities and interacting with other fields? Yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll give an example, and I'm, I'm going to happily not remember who, uh, probably do remember who it was. So I was, when I was a department chair, there was a, a budget crisis at Cornell, and there were a number of meetings where all of the faculty chairs, which is not faculty members, these were closed meetings, mm -hmm. were called to meet with people like the university lawyer, for example, who told us that we could increase teaching loads and mm -hmm. that we could also just, you know, not, not, it wasn't about being unfair. It was just saying, let's have a form of actual pragmatic assessment. And assessment was a big tool for how all the departments are functioning, how all the faculty are functioning in the departments, be ready to call people in and increase their teaching loads. I don't think for the most part anybody did this, but in the sciences, as you know, many scientists are teaching one zero or one one. Mm -hmm. In the humanities, a lot of people, you know, not everybody, but pretty much, are teaching two two. You can um, pay your way out of teaching. I know that in the sciences, but but apparently not everybody was paying their way out of teaching, but they still had their reduced teaching loads. So okay. some of this was directed at the sciences. Yes, yes. But some of it was directed at the humanities. Humanities are often service disciplines, mm -hmm. which is the assumption is that you are, you know, STEM is the thing that brings in the big bucks. Humanities faculty are here to teach, you know, writing and to sort of provide a rounding out of education. 
and fighting against that. And so I'll give another example. At one of these closed meetings, it was a, a, an associate provost or a vice provost or somebody who said, when I, I spoke up, because we were being told we couldn't replace faculty who retired um, at all, mm -hmm. flat out. No visiting people, no nothing. And at the time, our history was fairly small. And I said, one of our senior faculty who could retire, in fact, she has not retired, so I'm not talking about her, but is in the Renaissance. And are you saying you could have an art history program without somebody teaching, let's say, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, you know, all of the artists in the Renaissance? And the answer was, we all have to make sacrifices. And for me, that was evisceration. It wasn't a simple adjustment. Mm -hmm. It was saying, your field doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it's like you can't have one of the basic building blocks of thinking about art history and visual culture because we have a budget crisis. Now, many programs and, and departments in art history and visual studies got closed down because it was a nationwide budget crisis. Yeah. And people in art history, faculty members, were worried that that could happen because that's how serious it was. And my advice to them at the time was, everything you do, make a lot of noise about it. You know, make sure you get publicity. Make sure that you're doing things that are really visible, because that's part of it, making sure the humanities matter visibly and out loud. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know many people are good at that. It's not a, it's not a critique. But I think it, it, there was people did pay attention. They did more of that. And I think the department became stronger. I ended up being able to hire and increase the size of the department. But it was scary. And it's scary in a lot of fields, including English and history, mm -hmm. places that teach subject matter that is in so many ways essential. There's, there's a almost parodic but actually quite serious um, piece people put online recently advocating for there being a historian's advisory panel for oh, the president, yes. yeah. that, that government should have actual historians who give advice on what is the history yeah. of how do these things operate. Yeah. So, so you don't repeat. <laughs> so, or if you do repeat it, you know why. Yeah. You can adjust. Mm -hmm. And that sense of the humanities being the memory of culture. Mm. Yes. And that being an essential category for knowledge. I, when I, read Facebook posts and things. I yeah. think that's actually how people discourse with each other. Yeah. And I often think this is why we need people to invest in their humanities education because it teaches you how to make an argument. It teaches you how to make um, comparative example. Like if you're going to mm -hmm. compare things, how do you make equal comparisons? How mm -hmm. do you structure things that have multiple layers? I think when you have to read text and also write and be criticized, it's not... You know, you wrote an essay on Facebook, but by no means is that an actual like essay. Anyway, I just think there's a case for for every for humanities that people aren't thinking about in this very like you know basic way. Because I see people making arguments that don't make sense, or we say things are equivalent when they're not. Mm -hmm. Right? Like something that happens. 2% of time is just as important as something that's happening 80% of the time or whatever. And it's like, but they get equal weight. Well, should they? And how do we mm -hmm. think about those things and structure them in a way that's convincing? Or how do we even come not do all these straw man things? And so, yeah, I just think it's really important. And also, I was going to add that, you know, the humanity, you're mentioning how the humanities are kind of being attacked. And I think even for the STEMs, if it's a basic science, mm -hmm. they're, they're, 
you know, if you can't make someone, if you can't prevent the case that you're being um, useful, mm-hmm. they're also being attacked. So a lot of physics programs are dying out. And I think that's yeah. also why astronomy, like, they work so hard to mm-hmm. look at the stars, but it's cool, you know, the cosmos. Like they sure. are so, astronomy. But it's an abstraction. They're some of the best uh, public science people yeah. because they at some point learned like, hey, Billions Nobody. and billions. <laughs> we're not, Carl Sagan, we miss you. We're going to die out if yeah. we don't actually make this look cool or sound Well, I mean, cool. uh, to be fair, at these some of these meetings with chairs, I mean, for example, the chair of chemistry was saying, you know, you're cutting me to the point where I can't encourage students to major in chemistry because mm-hmm. I don't have the support to run labs. Yeah. And they can't do this without labs. So it works in the sciences as well. That is, how are you funded? How are states learning that it matters to fund knowledge? Mm-hmm. It's not a... and. Of course, in some of the humanities, I advocate for the humanities, yeah. but I also think that there are many people who have worked on interpenetration of science and humanities concepts. Mm-hmm. Christie's one in terms of mm-hmm. her work, and you to some extent as well. It's it's not a... We're not opposed to each other. Mm-hmm. We're fighting a common enemy, which is to say, in what ways can there be public awareness of why it matters to support education? Yes. And this, I, I see this push towards translational work, this push mm-hmm. towards, it, if it doesn't have a directly applicable use, then it's useless. Um, everybody's doing entrepreneurship now, so mm-hmm. now, and the science is really big to make whatever you do have some sort of application. Mm-hmm. Applied research and I've also versus s- pure but it, like business and it's like mm-hmm. where this is now like a minor, people are just doing this. And I've also, from other institutions I've gone to, even if they have a primarily teaching focus, mm-hmm. the faculty are now being required to have R01s and also have teaching. Wow. Um, so they're yeah. seeing shift in what they're required sure. to do. They're shifting what people are teaching. So now it's all translation. Make a business. Make mm-hmm. a product. Make a business. Not let's teach students. And and it's, it's kind of interesting to see this transition happening. Um, yeah. And it scares me, but... I think it's I think it's frightening. <laughs> well, but it, but if you think about it, also to go back to the social media thing, um, there is. And I know that the two of you put these podcasts on Twitter as mm-hmm. well as Facebook, as well as just making them generally available. But there's a sense in which I think people are also learning that advocacy can be part of mm-hmm. that kind of public outreach. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give as a sort of joking example, um, the Pokemon Go. Go. <laughs> Um, there are museums like the National Museum of the American Indian mm-hmm. um, that are celebrating the fact that they have particular locations in the museum where they're encouraging Pokemon Go <laughs> people to show up, saying, That's come cool. to this floor, because you'll this is what you'll find there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a certain way, although that's a somewhat surreal and obviously probably temporary game, mm-hmm. I mean, my son was a big Pokemon fan back in the day, so mm-hmm. I'm totally in love with the idea of metamorphosis. It's <laughs> totally good with me. But, but in a sense, you know, if you take that as a metaphor, in a sense, that's kind of what we need too with the sciences and the humanities. In what way could people be imagining themselves playing in the fields of knowledge that we represent that's both playful mm-hmm. and serious? Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it's both okay. curating actual knowledge. You know, these are actual museums. And encouraging you to move your body, move into these spaces, because you will encounter both fantasies that you're projecting mm-hmm. and something real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that as a definite challenge. Um, one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you um, would be, 
have how have your goals changed from when you were beginning your career uh, to now you're mid sort of yeah. like a veteran like you and you have like tenure and you've done all these amazing things and you've led things you you could actually say google me you could be annoyed when someone asks who you are and what you do and <laughs> say, just just google me and so <laughs> oh just just for the fun of it, I was sitting on the plane next to somebody you google once yeah and and they said something like that and I said so Google me. And they were shocked. They were shocked. It was like they're working for Google. It's like, yeah, well, there I am. There you are. There you are. I don't have the time. But, you, but you're gracious enough and amazing enough not to do that. But anyway, I'm curious, like, how have your kind of, I guess, like, has the way that you interact with academia and the space sure. and navigate yeah. and yeah. So there's changed? So go back to what you said about being really selfish when you're a graduate student and getting mm -hmm. that advice, which is unfortunately partly true advice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is... Also, as a beginning assistant professor, when I said earlier that, along with many people, I felt really drawn to lots of different things. I was, I still am part of American studies, feminist gender sexuality studies, visual studies, all these, I'm still in all these things. I could go to five different faculty meetings. You know, many assistant professors get trapped like that, which is to say it's a distraction from research, at the same time as it's a healthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Because you do want to be involved in overlapping communities, so you have some perspective on your own. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure you carve out the time for your research and your writing. I think that the very obvious thing that happened to me as I became involved with all these things and became in charge of some of them was that I became more interested in the future of the university and of the profession and the disciplines. Mm -hmm that are involved in a kind of collaborative way, which is to say I, I'm perfectly happy going and giving lectures in places. This year, for example, I gave lectures in China and Japan and, and mm -hmm. California and Canada. And in all, But on all those places, what I want to do is talk to, especially to women faculty and say, how are you doing? How do you do this? What's going on? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm, it sounds like boasting because it's not that I have global impact and can make changes at that level. Yes, global. Yeah, yeah. but I'm but I'm kind I don't of know interested. Why I whispered into them. Oh, don't. But I'm kind of interested in this as a global phenomenon, which of is the question faculty? of it. Yeah, women women in education. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I forget, you know, how much progress or how like women being oh, educated yeah. is actually not. It is in the span of history it's that we still recorded a huge history. Challenge. It is. No, there's still this so many new. girls who can't go to school. This is like yesterday that we, yeah. like, like just yesterday, if you think about all of time. Yeah. Yeah, oh my gosh. No, I, I just thought about it, the impact, you know. Yeah. So now you're more interested in the discipline and advancing the field and also helping. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I have been teaching for more than 30 years. Mm -hmm. So I don't have as much I mean, I still get nervous before the semester starts. Mm -hmm. I don't have the same dreams I used to have where I can't find the classroom. You know? <laughs> but, you know, that's a very classic nightmare of like, oh, and sometimes it'll be like it's the third week of the semester and I still haven't found the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's not that I, I don't, I'm not indifferent to teaching, but I don't have as much to prove. Uh, mm -hmm. I would still like people to take my ideas seriously. But after you... You know, so I, so the book that I'm working on right now, I still care about figuring something out. I'm still not sure if I'll get there. Mm -hmm. I still want to know more than I could possibly ever know. Mm -hmm. All those things are still true. They were true in the beginning. They're true now. Um, but I think what I care about is is that it is at a different level than when I began. Because when I began, as I said, when you begin, you have to be selfish. 
You yeah. have to make sure that you get your work done. And to do that, you have to spend a certain amount of time alone. Right. This feels like a good point to start wrapping up um, on this more general uh, point yes. about how perspectives change. And, uh, of course, Shirley taking us on this journey about her own development as a faculty member. Wait, one more question. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. What accomplishment are you most proud of in oh, your life? Oh, okay, that's and this, a good point. I was can, trying to avoid that one. <laughs> well, and I'll make it very broad. So it could be academic it could, or it could be just something else. I think it's difficult for me to take pride. I think that that might be part of it. Mm. I think because, you know, it's a version of being a survivor. Pretend like you're telling me a historical event that happened. Yeah. And you're just giving me the facts. Well, I mean, so. <laughs> I don't know if that helps. I, I worked my way through college. Mm -hmm. I was really poor. Yeah. And I did things like, so anecdotally, um, there was a sandwich shop in Berkeley that would give away the crusts of bread. Mm -hmm. And I would go and collect, collect crusts of bread for free to, to make sandwiches. That kind of poor. Yeah. Um, and I worked nights. I did all these different things. That so, in, in, so when I say it's difficult to take pride, what you're taking pride in there is that you survived. Mm. So the thing that's... Yeah. The more important thing to take pride in after having survived, and there are many situations I've been in where I could say that, is finding happiness. Which is to say I've survived a lot of difficult situations. <laughs> All the snaps. Yeah. Great spoken words. I, yeah. I, I, I can understand that. And then being happy after that. It is hard That's to take pride triumph. in that. Yeah. yeah, it really is. And it's so not the answer anyone ever expects, but it's like the those moments of adversity that really you notice and yeah. you get to that mountain. It's like you're in, you're in Philadelphia Museum of Art doing the Rocky dance, you know, everyone else <laughs> is walking around and doing whatever, but you're like, this is my yeah. moment. This is Rocky. I don't know which one or one through five, but yes. Thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. Thanks, Shirley. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm in the wrong field. <laughs> you want to like? You want to be a faculty mentor for biomedical engineering? Sure. <laughs> I'd have to say that um, not everyone is Shirley. So not everyone can be awesome. I yeah. get it. To say tactfully. But, <laughs> but anyways, um, thanks for tuning into another episode of PhDivas. Thank you so much to advisor Samuels for joining us today. I'm Dr. Zanya. And this is Dr. Liz. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud under PhDivas Podcast. And um, take care of yourself. Be happy. Be healthy. Um, find a great mentor. You can't have Shirley, but hopefully your university has one like her. Maybe her name is Carolyn or something. Um, <laughs> and that's it.